But I think the thing that motivates me most is being able to course correct some of the things and, and remedy some of the things that, you know, I went through as a child growing up, all of the different pain points that I experienced um, and how do we remove those barriers and pain points for the future generation. Welcome to episode 34 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features Maggie Lin, executive director and co-founder of Foster Nation, an organization that supports and empowers foster youth aging out of the system to become self-sufficient adults. Maggie and I discuss her immigration to the U.S. as a child and struggles through the foster system, as well as how she ended up at Dartmouth, her philosophy background, her years living in India and Mongolia, and her journey of starting and growing Foster Nation, among much more. Here is Maggie Lin on People Are the Answer. Maggie, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. So happy to be here. If you could start off just by telling us you know, where you're based, who you are, what your current role is. Sure. Um, I am currently based in Austin, Texas, and I'm the founder and executive director of Foster Nation. Awesome. And what would you say motivates you in general? Oh, that's such a good question. You know what's funny, Jeff? Um, I know you said this to me beforehand, um, but I think it's something that I've been reflecting on a lot because it's it's such a good question that I don't think a lot of us spend the time to stop and really ask ourselves. Um, but I think the thing that motivates me most is being able to course correct some of the things and, and remedy some of the things that you know I went through as a child growing up, all of the different pain points that I experienced um, and how do we remove those barriers and pain points for the future generation. I like that a lot and certainly a, a great motivator. Um, so where did you grow up and what was it like there? Um, I was actually born and raised in Taiwan. Um, I grew up in the countryside of Taiwan, which is, um, I'm trying to think of how I can paint a picture for you. Um, I grew up around a lot of fields. Um, the town that I grew up in was really quite small. You can even call it a village, honestly. And um, it was very humble and simple beginnings. And I, you know, I'll for sure get into that further down this conversation. Um, but I will say from my memories of childhood, it was a great upbringing, but also I didn't know any better. So that's a big part of that. And, and how long have you been in the U.S.? So I moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old. Yeah. So I've really been here for a very long time. I would consider myself um, really quite Americanized, though I find that um, the way that teachers describe this idea of a third space really encapsulates um, maybe how I feel or about my identity, which is, you know, in, in school, the idea of a third space is there's um, your identity as a student in school, you know, with your, or your classmates and your teacher, and then there's the identity as who you are at home with your parents. And then there's a the third space, which is a combination of all those things and wherever your, your most authentic self is. And 
Um, I find that I, I struggle. I have gone through moments where I struggle between, you know, that Asian identity and also that very Americanized identity because I don't exactly fit in 100% into one or the other. No, that's a, a good perspective on that. Thank you for sharing it. And um, I'm sure it's been an interesting journey for you. And, um, you know, I so when you moved to the U.S., you were eight. Where did you live? Did you move around? My sister and I uh, were put into the foster care system when I moved uh, to the U.S., right? So I was eight years old, um, and it was because of family abuse. And since then, I've moved through about six different foster care placements. Um, I really ended up in foster care because my father was murdered when I was just one, and my mo mother was far too young to care for us. So um, this is, you know, my life story is a very, very long one and kind of but it really ties into how I started Foster Nation and why I started the organization. And so um, the I would say assimilating into American culture when I first moved here was really challenging, right? Like just as an immigrant, it was, um, it was ESL class, being made fun of, being bullied. And um, I would say a big part of it was just ignorance is bliss, right? Like I'm sure there were, there were even worst moments of bullying, but I just wasn't even aware because I didn't know what they were saying. But I, but I do remember that journey of coming to America and really having no idea why I came to America and why I was here. Um, and so nowadays when I hear about the American dream and, you know, what makes America so great, it's, you know, I have mixed feelings about it because um, this is certainly a place where people can you know, can, can I guess meet with opportunities in a way that they couldn't maybe back home. But I think the circumstances by which I came to this country was also very uh, unique. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly dig into more of your kind of foster journey and how that led to what you're working on now. But um, as I'm still sort of walking through your early career, um, I know you went to Dartmouth and, you know, also spent time working in research there. How was your time there? Um, so Jeff, the funny thing is I love Dartmouth so much. Um, and, and here's why I spent a lot of time moving from home to home in foster care. So, you know, I never really been in one place more than maybe two, three years of my life. Um, once I ended up in foster care and believe it or not, Dartmouth was the longest amount of time I have spent, uh, in one place. So four years, obviously of college and, um, it was just a little bit of a culture shock, uh, quite frankly, because I I went from moving all over the place and not having a place to call my own to going to a place where I was I knew I was going to be there for four years. That was more stability than I had ever had um, in my life prior to college. And then, of course, just dealing with a culture shock of, um, you know, all of the different types of privilege that um, that came with going to an Ivy League school, which I was not given um you know, by birth or in my own um, life experiences. So that was really interesting. And I think when I was at Dartmouth, I, I did whatever I could to really um, make the most of it. But I will say, if I could go back now, I would do things so differently because I think I was just working through um, how to process even my childhood and everything that happened that I spent so much of my social emotional energy on that rather than really taking advantage of all of the different um, resources and the different things that I could have done at Dartmouth. That said, 
I was also your typical, like worked six jobs and also had a full terms load of classes. And so I, I definitely did a lot. It just, I think my headspace was, was very different. Um, one of the things, and um, I'll, I'll talk about this too, as far as, you know, thinking about mentors in my life, but one of the things that I did at Dartmouth that I really enjoyed uh, was doing research with a um, professor in the philosophy department. So um, I was a philosophy major at Dartmouth and, and a big part of how I ended up in philosophy was, you know, I went to college with no guidance on what I should major in and who I should be. Typically, if you go to college and your parents are lawyers or doctors or whatever, you kind of follow in those footsteps. Uh, I'll never forget going into a class, a philosophy class for the first time. And um, I remember the professor said in philosophy, you know, um, you come in for the answers and you stay for the questions. And I just remember freshman year thinking that perfectly describes my life right now. Just I had so many questions about you know, why this happened, why that happened. And um, I thought I was actually going to be a psychology major because I wanted to find all these answers. And then I realized that maybe learning to ask the questions was a, was a better approach. So I ended up doing a lot of research in the philosophy department and psychology department um, with a few professors that then became my mentors. Well, even though you would have changed some things back in the day, it sounds like you, you made the most out of that experience. And I'm sure a lot of us can relate to wishing we could go back and tell our younger selves, you know, how to spend our time more, you know, more efficiently, but um, sounds like it was a good experience. Yeah, it, it certainly was. Yeah. And you're totally right, by the way. I think a lot of people think, wouldn't it be nice to go back, right? <laughs> yep. And so then how did that lead into you beginning to work with the United Nations? The thing that's unique about growing up in foster care is you have to be very resourceful and creative about what you were going to do during summer breaks, during spring breaks, winter breaks, all of that, because you don't necessarily have a home to go back to, right? So most kids in college, summer break, right? They think they're going to go home and find an internship or even winter break or spring break. Um, so I had to get really creative. Um, during spring break, I would... Um, I would volunteer with the Tucker Foundation, um, which is a an organization within Dartmouth that um, is really all about the community and community impact. So I've taken all sorts of trips to, you know, Washington, D.C. to address homelessness or to Nicaragua to address uh, medical care in rural villages. And so I think that obviously sparked an interest in um, just understanding everything that was happening in the, in the world, all the different ways in which we can contribute and have impact. And so um, right out of college, I was really trying to figure out what was next. Um, and one of, the, one of the options was to be a social worker in New York, which um, kind of frightened me because I was afraid of, um, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be emotionally ready to take on that role. So that was one part of it. And, and then the other, um, the other job offer I had was um, working for Dr. Rajendra Pachari, who, you know, shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore um, for his research um, behind an inconvenient truth. So he was the chairman of the IPCC for the United Nations. And um, that job would have taken me to India. And quite frankly, I was um, always, I felt ready to get out of the United States. I was clearly running away from something, but 
So it just seemed like the clear choice. And when I, um, when I took the job, it meant moving into a new country with literally, I didn't know a single person in Delhi, India. Um, but I knew that I was a very good survivor and I knew that I was going to do well in a place where all I had to do was figure out how to survive. And so that was kind of how um, I ended up with that job. I just, I was ready for, for change to get away from the US. And I, you know, I ended up there for um, almost four years because I just loved it when I got there. So, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, four years in India, you must have just learned a tremendous amount. It's such a different place than the United States. Yeah, completely. I mean, I will say going to India was, to me, an assault on all of your senses plus more. You know, it was just so different in every possible way. Um, I worked for Dr. Bachari for about a year, um, traveled the world with him. And even in that first year, I was never really in India. And that's a big part of why I decided to stay longer and take on other roles, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But I think, you know, my my role with him took me, again, all over the world. Um, I was responsible for his North American and Asian correspondences. So, you know, one day we could be in um Europe and in Malaysia at the same time, um, within 24 hours. So I basically lived on a plane and airport lounges and hotels. And so when I, when I realized that I really didn't get to explore India for what it was and, and being a philosophy major, I mean, India is kind of the Mecca of philosophy and spirituality in so many ways. And so, um, I ended up after I, um, I left, um, that role, I ended up looking for opportunities that would um, allow me to stay in India. And I will say one of the things that I learned early on, um, probably because of foster care, is really to take opportunities as they come. So even now when people ask me for advice, um, I always say, when opportunities come to your door, say yes. You know, unless you have a reason to say no, say yes. And so, for example, uh, my next role in India that kept me there was uh, working for a software technology startup called PharmaSecure. So I was um, I was a fellow. Um, this was the CEO of this company was um, actually a Dartmouth alum, and I applied for a fellowship to to take on this role. Um, um, I was responsible for product operations, and I managed one of the products that allowed the company to um, to deploy a service in Southeast Asia and India that was fighting counterfeit drugs. And so basically what they would do is work with the big pharma companies and print alphanumeric codes on each packet of medication. And then I managed the product that allowed the end consumer to verify that their medication was real, um, not just through an app, but really thinking through the um, people that lived in villages and only had a Nokia and wasn't a smartphone. So I, I did, I worked, um, with that company for about six months. That was the length of my fellowship and, and learned quickly that while I cared a lot about this particular, um, this particular cause, the healthcare industry wasn't something that I was interested in. So then I just, you know, I kept going and, um, another opportunity presented itself to me, um, by way of just, you know, a, a friendly connection. And I ended up, um, running restaurants in, 
um, for a Bollywood socialite celebrity in his own way um, in Delhi. And so through that job, for example, I met um, a Harvard Business School professor who was doing an exchange program with Jindal Business School, um, and I ended up doing research with him. So a lot of the things, you know, the the all the different routes that I've taken in life has really been my saying yes to opportunities as they've come up and just being very open um, rather than thinking that I had a set plan and a set route that I was supposed to take in life. That's a really good way to go about it. I imagine it, it really fosters learning and, um, you know, to go from doing research to doing uh, software, that sounded like very important software work then to the restaurant industry. I mean, that's totally different. So, I mean, it seems like you got some really interesting and likely experiences that you still lean on, I would expect. Totally. And and I will say, you know, I had a lot of times in, in these scenarios, I had zero experience. <laughs> you know, hospitality is not something I've even worked at, even as a job. You know, I, I worked in customer service. I worked in retail when I was, you know, as soon as I could work when I was 15 and a half but I never worked in hospitality. So a lot of it was just kind of this mentality of fake it till you make it. You know, I had to learn all of the things. And I think I just had enough faith in my ability to problem solve that I was able to kind of pick up the role really quickly. Um, and, you know, in looking back, my that role working in the hospitality industry and running the Sky's restaurants really taught me how to... Um, how to communicate effectively and also um, engage with people from all different walks of life, right? Like it really required me to be more extroverted than I would have liked. And, and through that, I, I just learned how to turn it on when I have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's super valuable experience. I mean, I certainly am of the belief that it's beneficial for any and everyone to get some experience in the hospitality space. You know, I grew up working in restaurants. I owned and operated a restaurant for a couple of years it's uh, it's very hard work, generally pretty thankless. Um, it can be difficult to, to make money in, but it's uh, it's salt of the earth kind of work that makes you yeah. appreciate, you know, anytime you go somewhere and there's anything going on where people are, are doing things for you. Absolutely. It's kind of the, the whole, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes before, you know, you kind of, especially as consumers, it's very easy to be like, wait, I'm paying for the service. Why can't you get it right? It's like, well, if you've never been on the other side, um, you know, maybe you should try that first. Yeah. There's a lot of variables. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So from the restaurant space, you mentioned you got a research position. I, I believe you were researching kind of entrepreneurship in India. Yes, exactly. Um, so I worked um, with um, Dr. McClellan, who was, um, you know, on an exchange program, like I mentioned earlier in Delhi. And um, what he was working on was really studying the idea of repatriate entrepreneurship. So we have, um, you know, there was a period of time when all of the talent uh, from India, when, you know, when there were a lack of opportunities in India, they were super educated. They were getting educated in the West, going back to India and realizing there were no opportunities. So then they were like, wait, I'm just going to stay in the U.S. or Europe. And so, you know, that was called the brain drain, right? And 
at the time when I was there, it was a very exciting time because there were so many new opportunities in India. And also because the total addressable market in, in India was so large that really you could, you could apply a Western model um, to India and it could work because the total addressable market was so large, right? And so he was really studying what, what he was calling at the time the brain game, right? All the people that left India because there weren't any opportunities were now flooding back to India because there were so many opportunities. All the, you know, there was nothing else left to, um, to build or create maybe in the Western market because somebody else had already gotten to it. But India was, you know, enough years behind that they could bring these Western concepts to India and still do really well. So looking at Amazon to Flipkart as, as an example. Um, and so he was um, studying and interviewing a lot of these repatriate entrepreneurs, and I was helping him, you know, um, codify a lot of the, um, the responses so that we could basically turn it into 12 mantras for repatriate entrepreneurship in India. That's, that's great. It sounds like it was really interesting and, you know, some beneficial research for the country. Yes, it was, it was certainly something that I found really interesting because I was able to you know, listen, listen in on all of the interviews. And I think it's a, a lot of the advice still holds true, you know, today. And I think it's, it's something that I was able to take away and also apply it to every single position I've had since then. And what led you to move back to the U.S.? That is a great question. Um, so it's a, it's actually a funny story. Not so funny at the time, but now funny. Um, I going on my fourth year in India, I ended up getting dengue fever, which is, um, they call it the bone breaking disease because it's so painful and, um, you know, it lasts for about 10 days and it feels like every single day, somebody's smashing, taking a hammer and smashing your bones. It was insane. I've never felt anything like it. Um, and for the first three days I had a fever of 105, like brain damage type fever, um, and then as soon as I recovered and learned that dengue actually stays in your system, so you don't build immunity to it, it just stays in your system. And the next time you get it, you're likely to get even more sick. So it just compounds over time and you could potentially die. I was kind of like, hmm, maybe that's like my cue to leave. And so um, I ended up, I, I did a short kind of, you know, exploratory slash volunteer six month stint in Mongolia. And then I moved back to LA when the Mongolian winters were approaching, like winter is coming. And I was like, wait, what? I, this is, this is too cold for me. So I moved back to LA um, because I was, I was just ready for, I think some stability. Got it. That, that makes sense. I mean, that sounds like an excruciating sort of kicking off point and it, I mean, it's not as relevant to your story, but is that a concern long-term? I'm not familiar with this. Yeah, it's, it's. oh my God, Jeff, you have to look into it. It's a real thing. I was actually just planning to go on a um, 10-day like a Vipassana silent retreat. And um, the place I was looking at was in Costa Rica. And of course, I find out it's peak dengue season. And I was like, there's no chance, uh, you know, I'm I'm going because of that. So it is something that I think, will affect some of my travel decisions uh, for the rest of my life because it's 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 certainly no joke. I mean, I was hospitalized for 10 days and they had to take my blood um, sample every single day to make sure that I wasn't going to die. <laughs> so it's it's a crazy thing. You have to look into it. It's 
fascinating. It's just you get it from a mosquito yeah. and it's, you know, it's prevalent in certain countries and it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy thing. Wow. Well, that, that sounds rough, but glad you made it back to LA. And then um, I saw that your, your next endeavor appeared to be as director of strategic, strategic partnerships for AYO Sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've actually met uh, Nick Lewis, uh, the founder of AYO Sports before. Okay. So here's the funny thing, Jeff. Um, there was a little stint I had before this. And um, okay. I ended up there um, kind of by accident. And I, I don't really, this is not something I list publicly, but, you know, I was, I worked at CAA um, in the foundation for about mm-hmm. five months. And though I loved um, the experience, I think I learned really quickly Um this was a, a time, by the way, this was the first role I took on when I, when I moved back from living overseas for four years. And I think the reverse culture shock was so intense for me that I just, to go from everything, you know, living in India and Mongolia to going into an agency where people were complaining about lukewarm coffee, and you know, it just was so crazy for me. Um, but, but I will say it was an incredible experience and it really helped me to to understand the concept of looking at the five people you spend the most time with on a daily basis and realizing that if they're not the people that you, that, you know, make you a better person, um, then it's probably time to move on. Right. So I think, because I think the five people that you spend the most time with really, you know, influence how you are on a day to day basis. And so that's really when I met, um, when I, when I met the, one of the investors of, um, of AYO and honestly, it's, it's, again, it's a going back to, to this idea of when opportunity comes to you, just take it. Right. I, I knew I had just taken on this job at CAA and, and to have moved on so quickly would have been to burn a bridge essentially. Um, and so I was a little concerned about that, but I ended up, you know, consulting with them initially. Um, and then, kind of getting my feet wet and going, Oh, I would, I, I think I would find this really interesting or I think this would be really fun. Um, and so my role, um, with the, with the tech startup was really, um, working as a director of strategic partnerships. So I was working with all of the different NFL teams, NFL players and their foundations. Um, so always all of my, a lot of my roles were really focused on the impact side. And so, um, when I, I worked there for, for about six months, um, it's funny because as I start to look at my resume and or talk to people about all the different roles I've had, it almost, you know, I've, I feel like it's very clear I've jumped from role to role. Um, and I think so much of it was just learning how to make mistakes, fail quickly, um, learning about, I, I was always the kind of kid that maybe didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do by doing so, you know, so I was, I was there for also a very short time. And actually while I was in that role, um, and prior to that at CAA was how I met, um, Jeannie Pritzker, who then, you know, led to the founding of, of Foster Nation. But of course, before getting to that point, there was another role that I also played. Um, one of my best friends at the time was, um, was just confounded by, why it is that veterans who serve overseas come back into the real world and um, have such a hard time transitioning and, and can't get jobs. And so 
she, along with a, another co-founder who was, um, who is actually a veteran, um, started Veterati, um, which is really a, an organization that um, combats veterans unemployment and also creates a mentorship network for veterans. So I was a big part of um, all of those initial conversations and thinking through what that looks like. I remember, um, you know, driving my friend to Camp Pendleton and we would sit down with the master sergeants and all of these random, we were always like the only female around the area. So it was a very interesting experience, but really being a part of that, the, um, the initial stages of the organization and then just serving on the advisory board as the, the organization group. Got it. I mean, certainly really important work and um, it's glad to hear that that's being tackled and that you're able to, you know, add something for them. Yeah, it's it's funny because um, I think going back to this idea of being open to opportunities, when you when you position yourself in life to be open um, to things, I think um, I think you know, and and this I think needs to be counterbalanced, of course, with focus. But for the most part, I think if you keep an open mind about just growth opportunities, um, I personally think that's a good way to approach life. <laughs> Because all of the things like in, in looking back on, on my life, I mean, and even my career, I, you know, I've been really fortunate, knock on wood, that I, um, you know, I've never really had to send in a resume. I've never really applied for a job traditionally, with the exception of my first job at Armani when I was 15 and a half. Um, but outside of that, every single job I've had has really been just being open to opportunities and um, positioning myself in, you know, at the different cross sections of life and industries and just saying, hey, you know, maybe I don't know this, but I can learn really quickly and um, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. So, you know, even to even today, I, I, I will say every time somebody asks me for a resume, I, I'm like, oh, God, I have to go update that thing because I just never really needed it. You know, so I, I do feel very fortunate. There's a lot of luck involved in that. But I do think um, at the base of that is really being open to opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being open in life in general and open-minded goes such a long, long way. And it's, it's cool to see how that's aided your career path and, um, you know, took you, it appears into foster nation. You, you mentioned um, meeting Jeannie Pritzker. And can you talk about going from those roles you were in to starting foster nation? Sure. Um, I think maybe, maybe I'll start by just, um, kind of giving a, an overview of, of the organization and then talking about why I started it. Um, but, um, as an organization, uh, the mission of Foster Nation is to engage the community to provide resources, social support, and career mentorship to help foster youth become self-sufficient when they age out of the system. So our goal is really to help foster youth navigate that transition from foster care to college or career. Um, and our, you can say our overarching vision is really, you know, a world in which foster youth is supported and prepared for the re real world when they age out. Um, you know, our, I guess when I look at my life on a, on a personal level, I realized that the hand that I was dealt really felt impossible. I mean, every single step along the way, I, I could have decided, okay, I'm going to take the easy way out. And whether that's turning to drugs or turning to um, something that would take away the pain, I think a big part of 
um, my journey to date has been figuring out, you know, whatever hurdles or whatever, whatever challenges came my way, I was going to figure out how to face it head on, of course, with the support of the people around me. And so in thinking about that, that's, that's what we hope to be as an organization. Um, and for people that are, you know, listening to this that are not as familiar with the foster care system in the U.S., there's about um, half a million children and youth um, in the foster care system, and they end up in the system through no fault of their own, right? So, um, and once they get in, there's so many different obstacles that they face. So, being separated from their siblings, psychological trauma, moving from home to home, feeling unloved and unwanted. Um, so just as an, as an example, the organization has worked with foster youth that have moved through 40 or 50 homes before they even turn 18 years old. Um, and the hardest part really is when they turn 18 and have to, quote unquote, age out of the system um, with no one to turn to for support and help. Right. So the way that I help my friends or people that I talk to understand that problem is imagine the day that you turn 18 years old, Jeff, and I tell you every single person that you know is no longer around and you can't rely on them and you can't call them. You're on your own. Like every single resource that you have is gone, right? So um, that's really what happens to thousands of foster youth on an annual basis. And so as an organization, you know, we serve foster youth ages 18 to 30. Um, this is really when they age out. Um, a big part of the reason why we focus on this population is because it's, it's very hard to work with foster youth and foster children when they're still in the system because they are wards of the court. So just for um, privacy and security reasons, it's very hard to work with them when they're young. But also, it's much harder to work with youth once they've been through all the traumas of foster care and they've hardened themselves. And so there are far less organizations working with youth, youth once they age out because they're just not as cute. You know, from, from a, it sounds horrible, but from a marketing perspective, you know, if you're looking at, you know, a poster of an adorable like six year old who needs water somewhere in a developing country versus someone who's, you know, 20 years old and just looks angry. Right. Like it's much harder to to then convince people to support this latter group. And so it is a much um, it is a much harder um, age group to work with. But but we do think that, you know. I think once you can open that door of possibility for foster youth as they're aging out, it really makes all the difference. Yeah. What, what really comes to the forefront when I'm hearing you talk about, you know, what led you to start this and the types of people, what it's like going through the system is, you know, obviously the foster care system needs a lot of work, but thinking back to your work with Federati, you know, and, and my work in criminal justice reform, it's so unfortunate how these people get let, sort of left out in the cold. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you come out of prison, you're often just, you know, dropped at a bus stop with nothing. Um, you know, we talked about briefly the veterans coming back and trying to reintegrate into society and how difficult it is and how the lack of support. And it, it's similar in the foster care system. It sounds, you know, just very limited support and, you know, sort of similar to coming out of prison, it seems like just sort of dropping you off and leaving you to your own devices. And that's, it's scary. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate not to have to deal directly with a lot of this, these systems. And I certainly feel privileged for that, but I also can envision and put myself in the shoes of others, at least to an extent and imagine the nightmare that it could mm -hmm. be. Absolutely. So, I mean, they're, they're so lucky to have you guys there for them and, 
um, I, I really think it's incredible. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, as an organization, I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that we serve youth ages 18 to 30. And a big part of that is to your point, Jeff, that, you know, just because you turn 18 years old or 21 years old in some states really doesn't mean that you're ready for the real world. Um, and I always say this, just because you age out of the foster care system doesn't mean you age out of the trauma that, that, you know, now the system has put you through, right? So, so that's the reason why we serve such a, you know, going up to 30, a lot of people can look at someone who's 30 or 29 and say, what do you mean you don't know how to do this? Or you're 30 years old, like you should be an adult and you should know how to do this. It's, you know, the way that you heal from trauma, it, I think it happens really irrespective of age and all of that. You, you just have to take your own time. And so, you know, as an organization, we, we serve foster youth across 57 colleges in the state of California with um, partnerships that we're expanding on an ongoing basis. And our goal long-term, of course, is to be able to expand our work across um, different states. But, you know, our current partnerships span across 12 counties and the students we serve live in over 440 zip codes, um, primarily operating in LA County, but across California um, as a state. And a big part of the reason why we started there is, is really because that's where I'm from, but, and that's the system, the LA County is the system that I grew up in, but it's also the largest um, demographic of foster youth in the country, um, not per capita, but, but just by virtue of the fact that California is obviously a very large state. Um, and so our, our goal is really simple, right? Like when, when people ask me, well, what's the goal? What's the objective is we're here to help open doors of possibility for foster youth as they make that transition from foster care to adulthood. And so, you know, with partners in the community, we, our goal is to remove barriers to success so that they are prepared for the real world and that they can chase their dreams, even when the odds are stacked against them. Um, and the reason why it, it was very, you know, the operating word of our mission statement is, is that we're here to engage the community to provide resources, support and mentorship. Um, the operating word being, you know, engaging the community to, to do that is really because we're aware that as an organization, we can't do it alone, right? Like there's not enough overhead, you know, to, to actually address the pain points of the foster youth that, you know, once they age out, especially in the state of California and across the country. And so we really need, you know, whether it's individual um, community members or community groups or um, partners or corporate sponsors to really help make this possible. Um, yeah, and, and I think it might be helpful to talk a little bit about why I started the organization and, and um, when I started it, but um, that, that was kind of a high level overview of what the organization does. But um, I started the organization um, under the support and guidance of the Pritzker Foster Care Initiative. Um, it was specifically incubated under Foster Care Counts, which is Jeannie Pritzker's uh, personal 501c3 in 2016. So um, why I started it? Well, um, I mentioned earlier that my sister, um, Rachel, and I were put into foster care um, when I was eight years old uh, because of family abuse. And since then, you know, I had moved through six different foster care placements and she had moved through nine. We were separated for, for a year. Um, but obviously, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know, my father was murdered and my mom was too young. She had me when she was 15 and a half, right? And I share this part of the story 
to really help dispel the myth that kids and youth end up in the system because they're troubled or they're damaged. Because more often than not, they're just children that did nothing wrong. Um, and, you know, they they ended up in the foster care system through no fault of their own. They were simply born into the family that they were born into. Um, and I think it helps maybe to understand some of the stats in foster care um, to, to kind of understand the scope of the problem and, and really why, for me, it was so important to try, try and address some of these things. But 25% of foster youth that um, age out end up in prison within two years of aging, of emancipation, so of aging out. Um, and, you know, 40 to 50% of foster youth become homeless within the first 18 months after leaving the system. And the most striking to me is one in four former foster children and youth will experience PTSD um, at a rate that is two times more likely um, than U.S. war veterans. And I think it's so important to think about these stats um, because really foster care, when you look at it, is a pipeline into the prison, homelessness, and human trafficking systems. And so when I reflect on why I started the organization, it's so that we can shed light on this invisible problem in America um, because so many of these youth that go through the system, they're certainly not talking about it. You know, when I was in foster care, I didn't want to be different. And so I never told anybody that I grew up in foster care. Even when I went to Dartmouth, I don't think I told one soul that I grew up in foster care because I didn't want to be different. And also I just wanted to fit in and be normal. I wanted to close that chapter and put it behind me. And, but I also knew that I was able to get to Dartmouth because of the powerful impact of mentorship, right? So knowing that that, that impact, um, that mentorship and basic resources would make on the lives of foster youth like myself, I just decided that it was time to move the needle um, so that we can help foster youth become more than a statistic. Um, and that was, for me at least, you know, looking back in the in the decade that I, after emancipation, looking back at the stats and, and the experiences of foster care, it just blew my mind that after 10 years, nothing much had changed. And, you know, I spent a lot of time running away from foster care, I will say. I never imagined in a million years that I would be running a nonprofit specifically in foster care because there were just so many um, different things that I didn't want to be triggered. I didn't want to bring up, but as all good things that happen in life, I think it was by total accident, you know, that I ended up back in the space. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that, that you ended up there. And I think, you know, shedding light on the foster care system is really important. I mean, some of those stats that you shared are just really jaw dropping and it certainly imagine it in, hearing those inspires people to get involved. Um, and I do think it's important for people to talk about it and to try to get, you know, people that are in the system to try to, to talk about it and shed more light on this. It's certainly going to help get some change. And, um, when it comes to foster nation, can you sort of walk me through the process of, let's say, you know, you're an 18 year old coming out of the system. What's my first engagement and, you know, how does it go from there? I think a lot of people think that, you know, children and youth get dropped off somewhere and are taken care of by the government. And more often than not, I, you know, it's, it's really not the case. So I can tell you my, my personal experience. Um, 
first in the foster care system and as I was aging out. But, you know, and, and the reality is there are great foster parents that exist. You know, everything that I'm going to, to share doesn't, you know, doesn't mean that there aren't good people um, in the foster care space. But I will say I had very little experiences in foster care that, that were great. And so the reality is that there are many foster parents who do take in foster children for the money. And if that's their motive, then they will do whatever it takes to make sure that they make money, right? So um, even while I was in foster care, I had experienced most of the horror stories you hear about foster care. I was separated from my sister, um, who was the only person I felt I had left in the world. And the reason why this happens is because some foster homes don't want to take in more than one child. So they have to separate you. Um, I lived in foster homes where they put locks on the fridge to not feed us. And the only meal we had was the free lunch at school um, or, you know, living in fo with foster families that would drop us off at the library or mall whenever they went for family dinners with their biological kids. Um, and then other homes where they just made us feel like we were worthless or, you know, second class citizens because we were only allowed to eat the leftovers after the family had eaten. And sometimes if there were no leftovers, we weren't going to eat. So it, you know, I know it sounds like these things only happen in, in the movies, but sadly, I know that this experience is so real for, for many of the foster youth that we work with. And, and, you know, going back to answering the original question, I think the scariest part is this overall feeling of hopelessness and fear when you have to age out. So knowing that even though you felt horrible and you were being mistreated in the foster home, at least you had a roof over your head. And, you know, so typically foster youth are given a trash bag or a grocery bag to hold all their belongings and a list of homeless shelters. And then they sign a piece of paper that says, you know, I've emancipated. And then the government is basically done taking care of them. So I often felt like that was my only choice in life was to go into the world and have to figure it out. And, you know, it wasn't until my sophomore year in high school that I met someone who was my last foster mom and, and later, you know, then became a mentor that really helped me understand that I could choose a path and create the life that I wanted. Um, I, I felt personally very lucky that I met the right person at the right time because she she didn't do all of the things for me. All she said was, hey, you're really smart. You can go to college. And no one in my life had ever told me that. Um, not my social worker or any of the foster parents I lived with. So even though the odds were stacked against me, I ended up aging out of the system. And I you know, went to, went to Dartmouth. And for me, that journey was a very fortunate thing, right? Like typically you age out and then you go, where do I go now? At the very least, I had another four years to think about it because I had a dorm that I could live in. And um, and so that's a very different experience. You know, 10% of foster youth make it to college, which means 90% of foster youth don't have the next four years in a dorm with a roof over their head that they're thinking about. It. It's right away that they need to figure out what is next. And I think that is something that... Um, really no 18 year old or 21 year old would be prepared for regardless. So you're now expecting kids that have been through an insane amount of trauma to be ready for the real world when most 18, 20 year olds aren't, you know? So that's, that's kind of where for me, um, it's very much an inflection point. I think, you know, as they're aging out and then when they age out, that really is an inflection point into, into this, you know, into kind of what happens 
in society um, for, for foster youth that age out of the system. And, you know, a lot of times when I, when I think about making the economic case for why it's important that people should care about foster care, I always say, if you think about it, if they end up in prison, if they end up homeless, if they end up with all these mental health issues that go unaddressed um, or human trafficking, we as taxpayers pay for this anyway, right? We're just paying for it after the fact rather than doing it preemptively and in a well thought out way um, that prevents them from going into these systems. And so how do we as a society, you know, support organizations that are doing the work so that these kids and youth don't end up, um, you know, just falling into these pipelines? Wow. I mean, it's it certainly, we certainly need a lot more structure in place. And it seems like some of that you're adding. So, you know, let's say I'm an 18 or 21 year old that's just coming out, you know, that isn't going to college and I, you know, find Foster Nation. Um, what, what would I do? Yeah. So, um, so right now I mentioned earlier, we, we work primarily in 57 colleges in the state of California. Uh, and we support foster youth that are in college, partly because that was the easiest way to find them. Right. And again, this is 10% of youth in foster care. The other 90%, once they age out, there's not a lot of tracking that happens. And so our goal um, in the next, you know, two to three years is to be able to work with the Department of Children and Family Services and to work within, you know, um, the, the unified school districts to, or the County of Education to be able to um, support foster youth two years before they age out and then actually have a connection with them that we're able to track them once they age out. So again, our goal is to change those outcomes so that it's it's more than 10% that go to college and or have a career. Um, but until we, until we build these relationships, it's really hard to find foster youth once they've aged out um, because they kind of go into the ether and there's no one actually following them or tracking them. And so that's why we've started by supporting um, foster youth that are in college and um, and now that, you know, we've established a presence in California, we do get a lot of foster youth that, you know, find us through social media, find us through whether it's it's, you know, podcasts or any sort of media publication campaigns like, you know, being on the Today Show or um, that's really a way that we're able to find foster youth once they age out of the system. Um, but one of our one of our, you know, cornerstone programs is Career X, right? It's. Um, our, our goal is all that our programs don't exist just to address basic needs. Of course, that's really important because it's it's more of a holistic approach than just saying, okay, I'm going to help you find a career. But if you don't have access to basic needs like clothing so that you can go for interviews or food so that you're not starving or, you know, all of these things, then you're, you're not going to be able to to have a long-term sustainable career that helps you be self-sufficient in society. So, you know, our goal is beyond basic needs is really to open doors to better paying jobs and promising career paths post-college for foster youth. And if they don't go into college, just making sure they have a career. It doesn't matter if it's the, the beauty industry, the grocery industry or hospitality industry. Um, but, you know, CareerX really exists to help former foster youth develop the social skills, networks, and confidence that they need to enter the workforce in adulthood with greater self-sufficiency. Um, our objectives really just, how do we help them um, achieve greater educational attainment and degree completion, career readiness, and leadership capabilities in the community? Um, and 
you know, another way to think about career X is really as we were building out this program, another, you know, side hustle, side goal is to eliminate any barriers to entry for professional volunteers that just might need more guidance on how to properly mentor or coach uh, foster youth, because it is very, very rare that I talk to anybody um, about the foster care issue, especially the aging out problem in the country where the response is, oh, cool, but I don't care, right? Everybody's natural response is, how do I help? Um, and a lot of people, I think, could commit and dedicate 45 minutes to an hour a week to jump on a call with a foster youth to, to, just, to just say, hey, I'm in your corner, I'm your cheerleader, and um, I can show you the ropes on just basic life skills, you know, the role that, you know, any parent would play. But I think without a, st- a structure or program parameters or all of those things, it's very hard for a professional who is an executive to an assistant to say, oh, okay, I, I can't commit to this, right? Because a lot of times if I say, Jeff, will you be my mentor? I think the first question you'll ask is, well, what does that entail? How much mentorship do you need? What, how, you know, before you commit to something, because you are going to follow through on your commitment, you need to know what you're committing to. And this is kind of our approach to making sure that both sides of the equation understand what they're committing to, both from the foster youth perspective and, um, and the coach per, um, perspective. And that's why we, you know, we provide career coaches with a playbook so that all they have to do is facilitate and moderate 27 pre-built sessions with their foster youth mentees. This program is um, takes place virtually and it happens three times a month um, on a weekly basis um, over the course of nine months. So that's where the 27 pre-built sessions um, come in and all the coach resources are accessible through a portal on the Foster Nation website. And so foster youth and um, the career coaches know exactly what they're going to be covering with themes like building rapport, um, you know, adulting, things like how to organize your documents. Because when you age out of foster care, you don't always have access to the important documents that you need to be a member of society, like a state ID or your birth certificate or social security. Um, because you don't have parents that hold all of these documents for you to um, career readiness and financial literacy and um, wellness and, you know, all of that. And so there's there's a whole curriculum that goes into it so that really, if you became a career coach, all you do is you show up and you are present to guide them through the process. And, you know, that's kind of that's kind of the goal of the program. And and I will say, having launched this in April, you know, it's been it's been three months in, um, one of the things that I'd like to start thinking about is not just the benefits to the foster youth mentees, but really the benefits to the mentors as well, right? We look a lot when we talk about um, program metrics at how it has, you know, impacted the foster youth or the client themselves, but very few people talk about the amount of impact it has also had on the career coaches themselves, um, And we've gotten so much feedback from the coaches saying, you know, this young person has more to teach me than I could probably ever teach them on resilience and and perseverance and all of these other, you know, uh, important values in life. Yeah, that's that's a really crucial point that you make. And I'm sure after you get through this sort of first cohort, if you will, that you will have lots of testimonials and you can 
put together some some really good things that show people what a journey it will be on on the mentor side as well. And um, I imagine you know many of these youth will have ongoing relationships uh, with these people as well. Yeah, that's that's exactly the goal. Is that you know we we put them together for nine months, and the long term goal is that they develop an organic. Um, mentor-mentee relationship that that goes beyond the scope of the program, but but really the idea is that we are as as a program laying the foundational groundworks for what it means to to enter society and um, and to be able to hold down a job and thrive in that. Do you have any particular stories that come to mind of when you really saw the change that you could affect that your your work was yeah. changing? Uh, or sorry, the impact that your work was having? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a couple stories in mind, actually. So the first one is really at the outset of starting the organization back in 2016. Again, we were incubated. So we we really, we just got our 501c3 exactly a year ago um, from now, which is really exciting. But um, when we launched Foster Nation as an auxiliary group of foster care counts, um, one of the things that we do, um, and I and I always say this is our organization side hustle, is how do we amplify the voices of foster youth so that they're telling the stories in their own voice and, you know, not having their stories told by other people or by statistics or by the media, which often portrays them as these, you know, damaged, you know, they've gone through so much that they're so damaged, which, you know, it's not, it's not entirely wrong, but I think there's a lot more um, strength, resilience, perseverance than, than the media portrays. And so on um, this social media awareness campaign. It's called the Speak Up Series. We foster youth from all over the country submit their own stories in their own words and um, and we share that with the world. So there, when we first started the organization, this foster youth shared her story and it was so moving. There were hundreds of comments um, and, you know, all of these people kind of cheering her on. And I think there is there is catharsis in sharing the story for sure. I always say, you know, if you can speak it, you can heal it. And it's, it's in that process that, you know, we're hoping to create a platform that allows foster youth to have that, to have that platform where it's a safe space. Um, but what's really interesting about the story is, you know, this was something we shared on Facebook and, you know, there was a lot of great feedback. And then I think it was like a year later, there was a comment on this exact story on the Speak Up series. And I went to look at it because I thought, oh, how interesting that this was like a year later. And it was the, the, um, it was the biological mom of this of this young woman who um, commented and said, you know, I'm so sorry. I never realized the pain that I had caused you. She somehow found her on Facebook, saw this story and commented and said, you know, I just didn't, I had no idea. I was so young. I had no idea that I would have caused you all of this pain and everything that you had gone through. And I think, you know, to me, that was like a big epiphany moment is realizing that you can you, once you put a story out into the world. When you, once you put that narrative out into the world, you just never know what comes around, right? Um, and and I think that was a very powerful moment for me was realizing that a lot of foster youth might never share any of these stories on their own, but because we've given them a platform, that you know they feel like they can, right? So that was one part of it. Um, and then there's another story, um, a very pivotal moment at the outset of. Um, the pandemic, when we launched a um, food insecurity program, because when college campuses had shut down, all of these foster youth were going days without eating. And we 
launched a program that provided them at least a meal a day for 30 to 90 days. And um, there was a foster youth who sent in just a thank you note um, to say that, you know, she hasn't, she, you know, she's 24 at the time. She has an eight month old at home. And that meal was the only meal and the only way that she could be sure to provide nutrients to her child because she was still breastfeeding. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at my desk, you know, the pandemic had just hit. Everyone's like, the world's falling apart. And everyone's looking at their will be me stories of, oh my God, there's not, everyone's bought all the pasta and all the veg, frozen vegetables, right? I remember reading this feedback and just had a complete meltdown. Like I literally just started bawling because I was thinking about how crazy, how many lives in this country and in the world um, where we never get to hear this, right? We never get to hear this version of all the struggles that people are going through um, because we're so um, we're so caught up, especially when a catastrophe like a global pandemic happens, we're so caught up in our own day-to-day. And I think, you know, of course, I think service to self is very important, but then beyond that is, you know, how do we be of service to others? And this was a very much a moment to me that I... I mean, for days, I like couldn't stop crying just thinking about this young woman. Um, and that was the only way that she was able to breastfeed her child was the one meal that we provided. Um, and so that was something that, um, you know, kind of even still stays with me today. Um, and, and, and then the last thing that I'll share on, on these epiphany moments was um, when a foster youth wrote in about, um, about our um, Meal Nation program, um, the program that addresses food insecurity, um, as we're, we were, it really was meant to be an emergency relief program. So we were starting to wind it down now. But one of the things that um, this foster youth had wrote in, he said, you know, I'm, I'm graduating and transferring to a u- university and I couldn't have done it without your help. Um, and the last thing that he said was, you are like the family I never had. And that to me was very much, um, if I really think about it, the, the reason why the organization exists, right, is to is to help all the foster youth um, in that we serve and in, in, in the state and hopefully in the country someday understand that, you know, we're we're here, we're in your corner and we're just we're here to kind of be a small part of your success story. But that's why we exist. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I mean, you're certainly changing a lot of lives and um, it's exciting to hear and I'm looking forward to seeing your organization's growth and affecting so many more lives. Um, you know, it's come up a bit that you you know, had a, sounds like a pretty difficult childhood going through the foster system was, you know, no one would blame you, I think, if you came out bitter. Um, but did you see anything growing up that sort of showed you the positive side of giving back or that, you know, sort of aligned you in this way that you wanted to give back? Um, I really like this question because I think so much of life can be attributed to um, luck and gratitude, right? Um, And I think it wasn't exactly one experience for me, but overall, the kindness of strangers, right? Um, There wasn't, again, one experience. It's, you know, and and I've since kind of, you know, I, I consider them guardian angels, but because there, there were so many people along the way, Jeff, that I can't even remember their name. I don't know who they were. I don't know what their roles were, but because I was so young and so lost and so scared and, 
and I forgot to mention that when I entered the foster care system, I didn't even speak English. Um, but, you know, the person, for example, the person at the children's court that gave us an extra meal, right? Or some of the elementary school teachers I had that would let me stay, you know, two to three hours after school just to either do my homework in the classroom or help them grade papers because I didn't want to go home, right? Going home to me meant a different thing. Um, or the professors in college at Dartmouth in, in particular, um, um, Susan Bryson, who is a professor in the philosophy and uh, women and gender studies department at Dartmouth. I mean, I she became like a personal mentor to me, but she made me feel like I had a safe space um, on the college campus um, that I just, if anything went wrong or if I needed something that I could, that I could rely on her. And I think that is something to me that I look back on my life now, whether it's in a foreign country and all the various countries I've lived in or the study abroads I've done, it's really reflecting on the kindness of strangers, right? And and to me, it feels a little bit like grace, right? Like it's neither earned nor deserved. Um, it's just something that happens. And and that to me is, um, and that's why I attribute that to, to, to luck and, and gratitude is just when I look at how much they've impacted my life, my life just individually and how that collectively gives me the strength and the ability to, to do what I do today, um, that's really where I learned the importance of giving back. Yeah, no, I, I really like that answer. Just, you know, the kindness of strangers and um, certainly I'm sure part of that was, was you as well. And, you know, that you earned that in, in a way from some of these strangers, I imagine. And um, I'm really happy with uh, how that sort of helped carry you through to the point where you are now. Um, and, and mentorship has come up a lot in our conversation. It's obviously something that you value a lot that you think and know is very important for foster youth. Um, you talked about your last foster mom and how she you know, told you that you could go to college. And you mentioned Susan Bright Bryson from Dartmouth, um, you know, is there anything else you want to add on them or anyone else in particular that has been an especially impactful mentor? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had many mentors in my life, you know, people that I tremendously, uh, tremendously respect that range from, you know, people, you know, across philosophies, like this philosophical aspect of my life, psychological, social, emotional, and maybe subject matter experts. So people who were just like career mentors. And I like to point out, you know, Kate Luan, who, who is my last foster mom before I aged out that again, helped me realize that living the life I wanted was possible. And of course, you know, um, Jeannie Pritzker who gave me the emotional safety net to really start foster nation. Right. And in looking back, I, I feel like what she did was she believed in my ability to create impact in the foster care space before I even believed I could do it. Right. And then there are mentors along the way that, you know, I, I call them guardian angels because, you know, whether I stay in touch with them or not, they played a very significant role um, in my life. And, and I would say it's, you know, I don't have um, set mentors per se. Like I go to this person for this and I go to this person for this, but I think, typically the mentors that have played a significant role in my life and still do are the people who hold space for me to um, realize and see things that I maybe wasn't ready to see because of where I was in life at, at that moment. And so 
um, even looking ahead to the next five to 10 years of my life, um, whether it's career or, you know, personal or professional success, it's really just kind of being open to the possibility that somebody might enter my life and help me see something that I can't see right now because it's just maybe I'm not there yet. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it, you've clearly had some great mentors come your way along, uh, along your process, along your journey. And also the kindness of strangers. It's, it's really cool to see you sort of turning this around and doing the same for others. So um, you can certainly be proud of that. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, if you'd like, you can ask me a question. Yes, I would love to. Um, I, you know, I, I like yourself, love asking questions. Um, and so I think it's really cool that you're doing this. And I, and I even love, you know, the, the premise of this, which is people are the answer to um, a lot of the societal problems that we deal with. Um, but the question that I had for you was, you know, is there a common thread you see between all the different people across various sectors that you interview on this podcast? Like, is there something that you, um, you find is, is something that kind of like links them all together, whether it's, you know, tech entrepreneurship or impact entrepreneurs or, you know, all the things in between that. The first thing that immediately pops in my mind is just the humanity of these people, their belief in humanity and their, you know, it's come up a few times on the show. I sort of say, you know, we're all on team humanity. There's no reason that we should be fighting against each other. And I feel like most of the people that I've interviewed agree, you know, we're on team humanity. We believe in people. Um, we believe that people, every single person has tremendous potential. Um, so really it's that most of the, the people creating this intense impact also believe that people are the answer. I love that. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, thanks for, for that. It's um, an honor to talk to people that are doing such incredible work and um, yourself included. And uh, if everything were to end tomorrow, what are you most proud of? <sighs> wow. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I think about how I was joking about this with a friend last night, but, you know, I always say, I think I was my own tiger mom in a lot of ways and very hard on myself. And that's a big part of my drive is, is that I push myself. Right. So, um, I'm one of those people that, you know, i I think a lot about how, um, I think a lot about how maybe I haven't done enough or maybe, you know, and, and so I, I really love this question because it really changes how I, um, it just changes my perspective. So instead of focusing on all the things that I haven't done yet, or um, maybe I haven't done enough, it's it's focusing on you know what I have done. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of is really having turned the horrible hand that I was dealt in life into a superpower that you know allows me to shed light on on this problem in America and and in the process really help foster youth in and out of the system feel seen and heard. Because I think at the end of the day, that's that's what we all want, right? And um, when I say that it's to me a superpower, it's you know now when I speak to foster youth students in college and um, whether it's you know just in class or a graduation ceremony or whatever it is, um, I say it's a superpower because you know I realize that 
the hand that I was dealt, not everybody would have dealt with it the same way. Not everybody would have played that hand the same way. And I think so many foster youth come out of the system because it's such a stigma. They come out of the system being ashamed of their story. And I actually think it is a superpower um, to have gone through foster care and be standing in any room that you're in around anyone that you're, you know, surrounded with. So, yeah. So I would say that's, that's, some, that's the thing I'm most proud of. As you, as you should be. And um, it's really cool to see how you've taken that hand you were dealt and setting an incredible example for other people, not just people coming out of the foster system, but just people in general in life that have been dealt a difficult hand. And that's certainly another thing that some of the people I interview have in common is that they've had some difficult times in life and have learned from those in order to create impact. So my big question that I ask every guest, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? That's a really great question. It's a very big question. <laughs> it's like, Hey, can you tell me the cure to cancer? I'm it like, is. gee, Jeff, let me think yep. about that. <laughs> um, okay. So I think the, my approach to that question is a little bit more philosophical than it is, um, you know, technical, but I would say, I think one of the bigger problems in the world is how individualistic um, our approaches, especially in Western civilization and Western communities. So, um, you know, if we can figure out a way to be more communalistic in our approach to all of society's problems, I think that's the one thing that I would like to change or fix. Um, and the reason why I say this is because I think the way that having a communalistic um, mindset would you know, reverberate in society is that it actually solves a lot of the high level problems that we have, right? So whether it's homelessness or the foster care system or um, the veteran transition into civilian life, right? Like, or the incarceration system and rehabilitation, all of these things, right? If we can think more as a community, um, then I think a lot of these problems would inadvertently be solved together as a whole. Does that make sense? So like the ripple effect is that we all start to think, it does. you know, of all of life's challenges and societal issues as a community. And then over the course of time, um, all of these issues, you know, and I'm more focused on foster care so I can speak to foster care. You know, if we think as a community, we think, hey, you know what? these kids that were born into these horrible, dire situations, we can take, like, we should step in as a community. We can take them in, we can foster them and help them, you know, on this, on this path until they turn 18 and set them up with the tools and the resources that they need. Um, you know, that, that's, that's just one example, but then you can of course extrapolate and apply that to the veterans issue, homelessness, human trafficking and everything else. I think it's a beautiful answer. I really like the way that you put it. Um, and it's, it's better puts what I've been trying to say in terms of saying we all need to be on team humanity. Like we just need, we're in this together. Um, you know, everyone else doing better is going to be better for all of us. And um, I really love that. And I, 
hope that we're on a path to a more communalistic society. Me too. Uh, you know, your story is very inspiring to me. It definitely will be for, for listeners and watchers. Um, how can people best support you, your impact and foster nation? Um, Jeff, I love this question because um, it's, you know, it's a way to, to, I'm a very actionable person. So, you know, if I'm listening to something or reading something, I'm like, okay, wait, how do I, how do I do the help or how do I apply this to my life? And so um, it's, it's really simple, right? I mean, as a nonprofit, every single nonprofit needs the support of, um, needs financial support, right? But beyond that, and, and I, and I say this one first because it's the most obvious and, and then I want to get it out of the way because, okay, other than donating your money, which a lot of people, you know, maybe have done before, or maybe they don't have the capacity to, which is totally fine. I think there are actually a lot more that people can do outside of donating money to support an organization. And, you know, it's one of two things, particularly for our organization, but the first one is be, be a mentor, be a career coach, right? Um, we've, we've piloted this program and um, we're launching the next cohort in January of next year. Um, this initial pilot has 40 foster youth matched with 40 career coaches. And so um, by next year, by the end of the year, in Q4 of this year, we'll start recruitment. And so, you know, if you want to learn more, you can go on um, fosternation.org slash um, backslash career X. Um, so that's a, that's a big part of it. And that's something that people can, you know, do right away. Um, but the other thing that I always say when people ask me this question is, um, you know, as far as having impact and how to support the organization is to just donate your conversations or donate your connections, right? A lot of times people think they can only donate money to a nonprofit or, um, you know, donate their time. But beyond that, if you just think about what you talk about on a daily basis, over dinner, with friends, over a drink, right? Um, if you take the time to donate your conversations and small talk about foster care and maybe something that, you know, you learn from from listening or tuning into this conversation or seeing something in the media, you might be shocked at how that actually helps people to, to take action, to do something um, about the problem, right? Because you don't know over dinner with a group of friends of eight, who's actually going to step away and go, whoa, that really affected me. Like now I'm going to look into how to be a foster parent or how I'm going to be, um, how I'm going to volunteer in my local community or how I can donate. Um, but, you know, a, a big part of donating that, donating that conversation is also thinking through what are the connections you can make for organizations and causes that you really care about? In this case, for me, it's foster care. Like, you know, if you work at a company um, that has a corporate social responsibility arm, how do you make that connection, um, whether it's creating an internship program for foster youth at the company or or just setting up a long-term partnership, right? So I would say the biggest thing always for me when people ask me this question is to donate your conversations or connections. Man, I, I really like that a lot. I'm going to steal that, steal donate it. your conversations. Do it. um, it's, it's, so, it's so impactful. I mean, I just sort of naturally do it with the things that I'm passionate about. But um, for everyone out there, if you hear about an issue that you care about, yeah, slip it into conversation. I mean... Certainly when I talk about the injustices of our criminal justice system at a group dinner table, you know, people tend to be mind blown if they're not familiar with it. So I'm sure it's similar in this case. 
Yep. And it makes you way more interesting um, than just talking about the weather. So. hundred percent. Well, uh, Maggie, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for sharing your story. Um, I love the work that you're doing. Really excited to see where it goes and um, look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really, really appreciate it. Just, you know, how thoughtful the questions were. And it really also allowed me to reflect on, you know, why it is that I, I do what I do and um, just really grateful for your, for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.